The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network in conjunction with the Sampson Family Foundation, striving to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. Now here's Ralph and your host, Mac McDonald. Welcome in Center Court on the Winner's Circle Network. I'm Mac McDonald, and Ralph Sampson, my partner, is traveling Houston, and now spending a little time in Las Vegas. What are you doing? You're doing uh, some some shoe promotions in uh, in Vegas. Yeah, I had to uh, come out to Vegas uh, to meet some of the Puma representatives for their uh, annual uh, retail manager um, kind of gathering. And so we came out here to do that and do all the nice things you can do with people as social distancing as much as possible to uh, highlight the new stuff that's coming out in 2022 and 2023 for the Puma line. So it's been fun to see and enjoy, but, uh, you know, Vegas is always fun, but it's definitely a different place these days with social distancing. It's kind of different, but you know, I don't gamble. Any, I don't gamble anyway, so it's not a big deal. Ralph, it's a special show today because, you know, throughout the, the last year and a half, that we've done the podcast, we've certainly talked about uh, leadership and friendship and coaching and, you know, how coaches coach and, and the philosophy of, uh, you know, motivating young people. And today we just simply call it success on the sidelines. And I'm really looking forward to it because we have four people that have meant so much to the coaching profession and, the you know, the minds and the bodies of young people. Mike Krzyzewski of Duke, Pat Summon of Tennessee, uh, the Wizard of Westwood, John Wooden, and then Gino Oriema, also, uh, uh, you know, just a very inspirational coach who has done an outstanding job at UConn. So I'm looking forward to it. Success on the sidelines. Yeah, very familiar territory with, uh, you know, coaches and people that I've done some stuff with across the across the board over a number of years. It's been kind of crazy to, you know, experience uh, the coaches that I've been with um, from Roger Berge, you know, early on to – all the other coaches that we, you know, been associated with, and you, Mac, you know, some of them as well, from Coach Allen mm-hmm. to Coach Autumn to Laranega. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's you know, it's just kind of crazy to look back at uh, the coaches that I've had in my life and understanding that you know they're passionate about the sport and how successful all of them were. I mean, Don Nelson was my coach at uh, Golden State Warriors, and he uh, took it to a whole another level because he was a player and a coach in the NBA. So he kind of knew how to navigate, 
you know, players as well as uh, coaching styles as well. And he was very successful. So I've been blessed with a, a great number of coaches. Ralph, one guy we've talked about a lot was your high school coach, uh, you know, Coach Berge. What was it about him, the way he motivated you, the way he taught you the game? What was it about Coach Berge that, you know, that you that made you guys so close? Well, Matt, Coach Berge was, I mean, he started it. I mean, so he saw me come up as a young middle school kid, right? And understood that, hey, maybe father he could be a decent basketball player. You know, in Mike, in those days, there wasn't any weight rooms or any, um, you know, formal weight rooms or programs out there you could follow to teach a kid, you know, the game of basketball. So he mm-hmm. kind of made his own stuff. And I recall we had one of those universal, old universal machines that uh, you had the weights on that, that you could and it'd be okay. But he made it lay on the ground and lift weights that way and do all kinds of fun stuff. So it's been crazy to see it evolve even uh, to now. I was one of the first guys that brought weights into the NBA locker room. So it was uh, crazy to see kind of how we started and how innovative he was, uh, you know, in the, in the late 70s about getting stronger, lifting weights when not a lot of people knew that weights was going to help you. They always thought it was going to hurt you when it came down to your shot or running or whatever. But, you know, today everybody lifts weights 24-7. Ralph, when you talk about the Roger Burgies, the Terry Hollands, the Don Nelsons of the world, you know, all the people that you've, you've played under, worked under, were these coaches good listeners as well? Not only with outstanding leadership skills, but were they good listeners? Yeah, I think they had that knack to understand, you know, uh, who the player was playing against, number one. And number two, and what worked during the course of the game. I mean, there was no analytics and stuff that they have today in the sports. There was um, a, a, a guy behind the bench that could, took stats on, you know, certain plays we ran and how successful we were. And, Mac, they would go in the locker room at halftime and cut videotape old style of, mm-hmm. of actually the game and try to get it to us at halftime and, and most of these coaches, right? And that was hard to do because, you know, you had the old style of VHS that you had to cut and develop and put out there but we watched a couple clips and uh, most of the time we ran that play again but no back and and, and i'll tell you back in that day as well we had the ability to have it almost like the sacrificial lamb right so if 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 i was guarding somebody or somebody i know i could just beat we run the same play five six times right (laughs) until they made a substitution or, or or they doubled somebody Right. And uh, one of the old saying is we got a, we, we got a, we got a mouse in the house. So we got a mouse in the house. We take them down the post and we beat them up. <laughs> they would have to double and we throw the ball out and get an open shot. So back then it was pretty much fun because there was much more strategy in the game, I think, than today's game. We positioned the show today as success on the sidelines. When we come back, the philosophy of one Mike Shashevsky. We'll be back after this. The mission for the Samson Family Foundation is simple. We strive to uplift, empower, and educate the communities we live in. The foundation promotes charitable and community input, educational development, health and fitness, and scholarship opportunities. The Samson Family Foundation's initiatives focus on patients with cancer, educational scholarship programs, and give students guidance in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The Samson Family Foundation encourages limitless possibilities, Your financial support is tax-deductible. To learn more, call 540-615-5097. The website is samsonfamilyfoundation.org. Uplift. Empower. 
educate. It takes teamwork to make the dream work. That's why you know, our group got along so well together, is because it was never anybody imposing my rule on somebody. It was all of us imposing and living our standards. The Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation present Center Court with Ralph Sampson. Uplift, empower, educate. Welcome back. This is Center Court on the Winner's Circle Network, and this is Success from the Sidelines. Ralph Sampson is live from Vegas. And, uh, you know, Ralph, we're blessed to, uh, you know, grow up in ACC country. And when you think about the coaches we've had a chance to get to know uh, and that we know now, like in the Old Dominion, of course, you know, you've got Tony Bennett, Mike Young doing an outstanding job at Virginia Tech, uh, Jeff Jones, who who played at Virginia and Old Dominion. I mean, we've been blessed to follow these, these great coaches. And as I started to say, when you pinpoint the ACC, when you think about the coaches that have been here, and then the staying power of one Mike Krzyzewski. I mean, he's he was at Duke in 1980, uh, has won close to 1,200 games, five NCAA titles. He has just been magnificent not to mention the the three gold medals and two gold medals as an assistant coach what did you learn about coach k well mike you got to go back to the pre-pan american games when uh i was you know in high school coming out as the first high school player to play the pan american games or olympic uh, type situation and i go to bloomington indiana with bobby knight and coach k is part of the staff right mm-hmm. so I go early because I but I made a team, and uh, Coach K was working me out. He would take me to practice before three three or four days before everybody else got there. I was already there, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and and the crazy part about it, I had not uh, really decided at that point when the, when the trials were there. I hadn't decided to go to Virginia at that point in time, and so you know, obviously Bobby, you know, I come to Indiana, play with Isaiah Thomas, blah 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 blah. blah. But obviously, that didn't work. <laughs> but I saw Coach K at an early, early, early stage of his career, and you could see it coming. You know, he had the coach's shorts on, the T-shirts, the whistle. He had all the tools. You didn't know how great he was going to be, but, you know, he was a student of the game from Bobby Knight. So he had a lot of Bobby Knight-isms in him uh, that, uh, you know, being hardcore and being Army and, you know, and, and, and that type of stuff as well. So you could you could see it happening, but you didn't know it would be this special, you know, happening in, in, in his careers. Uh, going to retirement, but you didn't think you didn't you had no idea it would be like this. Ralph, as you mentioned, uh, you know Duke was pretty good in the late seventies, and then uh, they really kind of fell on some hard times until Coach K got his you know uh, his program put together and, and started to recruit you know the Johnny Dawkins and the the, the Allerys and the Jay Billises, and I mean he really you know started to get some great players. What is it you remember about the way Coach K would would try to play a seven four center from Virginia? And I know that you know those games normally the Duke Virginia games were knockdown dragouts. Yeah, you have to remember. I mean, Duke was fairly good. Um, you know, the first couple of years because they had Jaminski, Gene Banks, and Smenarco and that group, right? So they had gone to the Final Four a little bit before mm-hmm. that, and. Uh, but then they had to. Everybody graduated. Um, the coach retired, and they had some down years in, in, in there as well. I mean, one of the things that I know I've heard people uh, like Mark Allery and those guys talk about it is Coach K, and they always talk about the 42 point beatdown that we gave them at Virginia. It was probably my second year or so, whatever, because they were just beginning their program, right? Then they get Johnny Dawkins, Tommy Amberker, right. 
Allery and a couple and a couple good guys that were you know really successful for me. He started to build a program, so he had all the pieces uh, of the puzzle together to make that happen. But then after you know a number of years, he had his philosophy down, he had his recruiting down, and he started getting the likes of uh, you know uh, Grant Hill and and all the other characters that he's got over the years, and built a solid program and 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 built a winning tradition program. So it was just fun to watch that. I mean, I mean, I wish I could have been. You know, fly on the wall during the wooden era, right? But um, you know, that would have been something amazing. Watch all those national titles as well. But there's very few coaches that uh, you come across uh, in, in your life that are, are like John Wood and Coach Allen and uh, Coach Kosciuszko as well. Ralph, I'm sure you remember the story too. After that 42 point night in the ACC tournament, and uh, and that was before really the the Duke program got got rolling. John Feinstein used to tell the story about uh, there were a couple of coaches and and uh, I think John was there and one of the coaches raised a glass at the Waffle House and said, uh, here's to forgetting tonight. And Mike Krzyzewski spoke up, raised a glass, and he goes, no, no, no. Here's to never forgetting. 1,100 wins later, uh, a Hall of Fame coach who has announced his retirement and he's making his final run in the Atlantic Coast Conference. He's got a darn good team this year as well. But it was a couple of years ago when Duke was not playing well. I think they got off to a one and two start. They came back from Clemson. They were getting ready to play Virginia. And Coach K realized that it wasn't so much the team, it was him. And he felt that he needed to make some changes as a head coach. I knew that I wasn't being me. And and there was no excuse, no matter what, for me, I, for having the responsibility of being a coach of this team or a leader, there's no excuse for not being a leader. I mean, that's part of leadership. You be a good leader, mm-hmm. no matter what is happening. And I got knocked back for a couple of weeks. And uh, when we left the locker room at Clemson, one and two, and it looked we could really go south easy. Uh, it was uh, more of a soul-searching time for me, not about X's and O's, about, like, I have to get going. And then my staff was really good. And, you know, 48 hours, we're playing Virginia here in Cameron. We have a new substitution pr- uh, uh, pattern, uh, a new kind of verve, and we win. Yeah. And we've been, pretty, we've been pretty good since then, and I've been better uh, since then. So many of these things at times are not X's and O's. Mm-hmm. You know, the way the press analyzes everything, they have telestrators, they have all this, and I, I think that stuff's good. But most, many of the times, let's put it this way, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about, it's about people, and it's about feelings, and it's about motivation, and especially when you're dealing with 18 to 23-year-old guys who are young men, some of them are still kids, and they're in the process of becoming men. Who was on that Virginia team? Because, uh, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't recall him losing to Duke many times, but I like to know who was that Virginia team that he made a uh, substitution because he, I guarantee, is stuck in his crawl uh, for our 42-point beatdown. He's always said that. And, and I hopefully we'll see him in a couple weeks at UVA uh, in his last game. I'm going to that game. I'll, I'll make sure I see him at the style and say hello and congratulations on his career for sure. Hopefully he will shake my hand and uh, I can congratulate him that way. But, you know, that's, that's the way it is. Coaching, I mean, he made sure coaching was not about the X's and O's. It's about the will to, you know, do something together at the team 
run the play effectively, sit a pick, whatever, even if you're not in the play scoring, but everybody does it together. And he was the master of doing it. And he, he, he'll, yeah. he'll, his legacy will will never die. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy how what he's done. Ralph, one of the things I've always admired about uh, Mike is, you know, his ability to listen, and especially when he got involved with the Olympic team. Uh, three gold medals, two gold as an assistant. Uh, when The team that he had with LeBron, I think Jason Kidd, Kobe might have been on that team as well. But one of the things that they decided to do was gather as a team, meet as a team, and not set rules, but set standards and i think now when you even you know if you have a sales force or you know, a marketing team maybe rules aren't the way to go but set standards first of all i don't yell as much as i did when i was a younger coach but i i never really yell with the with the national team in lebron's case lebron and i have a great relationship well how do we get that we get that from being honest from the get-go in, in that particular situation, it was, look at me. We need to have eye-to-eye -eye contact. You know, in, in my younger days, sort of for someone, I said, what the hell are you doing? You know, it would be a, a huge confrontation. And we tried, but they're not accustomed to looking at everybody all, all the time. And so it actually became one of our standards. There are 14 standards that our U.S. Olympic team had. It's the way you live, the way you expect other people to live. We have no rules, but we have standards. When we talk to each other, we look each other in the eye. Another standard is we tell each other the truth. A standard that LeBron introduced to the whole team when we met him was no excuses. You know, never make an excuse. That doesn't mean you don't figure out why you do it. A standard can be not being late, never having a bad practice, having each other's back, being flexible, having a strong face all the time. Remember that you're representing something bigger than you. You know, these are all things that I didn't come up with, we all came up with. And as a result, it was ours. And that's why, you know, our group got along so well together is because it was n never anybody imposing my rule on somebody. It was all of us imposing and living our standards. As I said, Coach K wrote a book about it called The Gold Standard. I recommend it for anybody because it, it's really a great lesson on, uh, you know, coaching executives, coaching a team, and, and just making sure that everybody buys into what you believe in. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mac, I'm out, like I said, out here in the, in, in the Vegas world, and uh, I got, you know, 150, 200 um, managers of uh, Uber stores across the country and in Canada as well. And some of the things that we have been talking about is one, knowing your team mm -hmm. two, having standards and quality of standards in your store and also sharing that information with the other stores so that those, those stores maybe be able to implement, you know, that in their stores as well. And that's what coach, coach K was doing. I mean, he had the best athletes in the world. He didn't have to tell them how to play. Mm -hmm. He just had to tell them how to respect the game and, 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 and respect each other so that everybody was on the same page. And that's, you know, that's, um, that's, that's uh, I mean, that philosophy is amazing. I mean, you can see it in the wooden principles and the Holland principles. And, I mean, that, there were certain things we could do. I mean, I can recall, Mac, my senior year at UVA, and, and I came back to win a national title, came back to want to win, and I sit in Coach Allen's office and said, um, you know, I mean, I don't think everybody's working as hard as I am. At that point in time, he said, well, Ralph, you know, you got to remember when you was a freshman. And you didn't know how to work at that point in time. You had to learn how to work. And you had some other people that helped you 
uh, along the way, and you got to help the others even more than you did. So I went to work on that right away and say, you know, wait room and, you know, be early on time, shoot after the first. Those standards are instilled in, you know, people to become, you know, great coaches or great players. And you got to get it from somebody. You, know, you just don't learn this, you know, on the street corner, right? A coach or somebody, a teacher, a counselor, somebody's going to instill that into you at some point in time. And once you grasp it as a young athlete or a person, I mean, the sky's the limit for your greatness. We had a number of years at UCLA where we didn't lose a game, but it seemed that we didn't win each individual game by the margin that some of our alumni had predicted, and quite frequently, I, <laughs> quite frequently, I, I really felt that they had backed up their predictions in a more materialistic uh, 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 manner. You're listening to Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation. Welcome back, Center Court, Winner's Circle Network, and this segment belongs to a guy that Ralph, uh, you know, had a couple of opportunities to meet, a 10-time NCAA champion, 664 wins, 162 losses, five-time National Coach of the Year, and he coached at UCLA from 1948 to 1975. Ralph, if there was anybody who understood how to win, how to treat people, how to treat his players, it was John Wooden. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the... the the Wizard of Westwood, I guess was his nickname, right? So, Coach Wooden uh, yeah. you know, won his uh, Wooden Award a number of times and got to meet him and, you know, his wife. And, I mean, that whole thing was just special to see someone has – did all the things in the time that he, he coached, right? And from the Bill Waltons to the Lou Alcindor's career, to the Bars to the Sidney Wicks to Curtis Rowe. I mean, he had great players. I mean, how, Mac, how do you take a kid out of New York City and Lou Alcindor's career out the bar and move him to L.A.? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just kind of unheard of at that point in time being recruited, you know, in, in, in that area. But uh, it's the last thing I have in my uh, home office, the pyramid of success, you know, all his building blocks to be successful. And I, I look at them all the time and I try to read them and understand them and, and, and apply some of the things that I can do in my life to, uh, to to some of those things. But all the other coaches I've had in my career as well. But Coach Witten is, is I mean, he's a, he's a pinnacle. He, I think he's got to be the best coach ever coaching college basketball. Coach Wooden passed away in 2010. He was 99. But long before that, with his books, with his public speaking, you know, talking about coaching and when he was a teacher and all the things that meant so much to him, the way he wanted to give back, the way he wanted to give back to people and his players. This is certainly one special guy. In 1934, when I was teaching at a high school in South Bend, Indiana, being a little bit... uh, uh, disappointed and delusioned perhaps by the way parents of the youngsters in my English classes uh, expected their youngsters to, to uh, get an A or B. They thought a C was all right for the neighbor's children because the neighbor's children are all average. But they weren't satisfied with their own and would make the teacher feel that they had uh, uh, failed or the youngster had failed. And, and that's not right. The good Lord in his infinite wisdom didn't create us all equal as far as intelligence concerned, any more than we equal as far as size. Appearance, not everybody could earn an A or B. And I didn't like that way of judging. And, and I did know how the alumni of various uh, schools back in the 30s judged coaches and athletic teams. Uh, if you won them all, you were considered to be reasonably successful. Not completely, because I found out uh, we had a number of years at UCLA where we didn't lose a game. But it seemed that we didn't win each individual game by the margin that some of our alumni had predicted, and quite frequently, I... (laughs) 
quite frequently. I, I really felt that they had backed up their predictions in a more materialistic uh, <laughs> uh, uh, manner. But I was true back in the 30s, so I understood that. So, I, I, But I didn't like it. I didn't agree with it. And I wanted to come up with something that I hope could make me a better teacher and give the youngsters under my supervision, whether it be in athletics or in the English classroom, something which to aspire other than just uh, a higher mark in the classroom or more points in some athletic contest. And I thought about that for quite a spell, and I wanted to come up with my own definition. I thought that might help. And uh, I knew how Mr. Webster defined it as the accumulation of material possessions or the attainment of position of power or prestige or something of that sort were the accomplishments perhaps, but in my opinion, not necessarily indicative of success. So I wanted to come up with something of my own. And I recalled, uh, I was raised on a small farm in southern Indiana, and Dad tried to teach me and my brothers that you should never try to be better than someone else. I'm sure at the time uh, he did that, I didn't, it didn't. Well, somewhere, I guess, in the hidden recesses of the mind, it popped out years later. Never try to be better than someone else. Always learn from others. And never cease trying to be the best you could be. That's under your control. And if you get too engrossed and involved and concerned in regard to the things over which you have no control, it will adversely affect the things over which you have control. Then I ran across a simple verse that said, At God's footstool to confess, a poor soul knelt and bowed his head. I failed, he cried. The master said, Thou didst thy best. That is success. From those things and one other, perhaps, I coined my own definition of success, which is peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. I believe that's true. If you make the effort to do the best of which you're capable, trying to improve the situation that exists for you, I think that's success, and I don't think others can judge that. I think it's like character and reputation. Your reputation is what you're perceived to be. Your character is what you really are. And I think the character is uh, much more important than what you are perceived to be. You'd hope they'd both be good, but uh, they don't necessarily be the same. When you have a chance to, to read about John Wooden and, and what he meant and to all the people around him, not only his family, but his, but his players and how much he loved to teach and how much he loved poetry, the Wizard of Westwood was certainly a treasure. And I believe the teaching profession, that's true. You have so many youngsters, and I got to think of my youngsters at UCLA, 30-some attorneys, uh, 11 uh, uh, dentists, 10 doctors, uh, many, many teachers in, in, in other professions. And that, that uh, gives you a, a great deal of pleasure to see them go on. I, I've always tried to make the youngsters feel that they're there to get an education, number one, basketball was second because they're paying their way. And they do need a little time for social activities, but you let social activities take a little precedence over the other two and you're not going to have any uh, very long. So that was the ideas that I, I tried to, uh, to get across uh, uh, to the youngsters under my supervision. I had three rules, pretty much, that I stuck with practically all the time. I'd learned these prior to coming to UCLA, and I decided they were very important. One was never be late. Never be late. Um, uh, later on, I had, I had certain things that I had. The players, if we're leaving for someone, they had to be neat and clean. There was a, a time when I, I made them wear uh, um, uh, jackets and shirts and ties. But, and then I saw our chancellor coming to school in, Lung in uh, denims and, and turtlenecks, and I thought it was not right for me to keep this other. So I let them just, they had to be neat and clean. And I had one of my, uh, one of my greatest players that you probably heard of, Bill Walton, he came and, uh, and gets the bus. We were leaving for somewhere, and 
play, and he wasn't clean and neat, so I, I would let him go. He couldn't get on the bus. He had to go home and, and, and get cleaned up to get to the airport if he did. So I, I was a stickler for that. I believed in that. I believe in time, very important. I believe you should be on time, but I felt a practice, for example, we start on time, we close on time. The youngsters didn't have to feel that we're going to keep them over. When I speak at coaching clinics, I often tell young coaches, and the coaching clinics, more, than, more or less, they'll be the younger coaches uh, getting in the, in the profession, and, and most of them are young, you know, and, and probably newly married, and I tell them, don't run practices uh, late because you'll go home in a bad mood, and, and that's not good for a young married man to go home in a bad mood. When you get older, when you get older, it doesn't make any difference, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So I did believe on time. I believe starting on time, and I believe closing on time. And another one I had was not one word of profanity. One word of profanity, and you, you are out of here for the day. And if I see it in a game, you're going to come out and sit on the bench. And the third one was uh, never criticize a teammate. I, I didn't want that. I used to tell them I was paid to do that. That's my job. I'm paid to do it. Pitifully poor, but I am paid to do it. Not like the coaches today, for gracious sakes, no. Uh, they're, they're, it's, it's a little different than it, than it was in my day. But those are the three things that I uh, stuck with uh, pretty closely all the time. And uh, uh, those actually came from my dad. And that's what he tried to uh, teach me and uh, my uh, brothers at one time. Jump balls at eight, you, you better be ready to get a jump ball. So, I mean, those things that, that coaches teach, you know, one of the things that, about this country as well, when they start taking out of the school system. I thought that was one of the worst things they could do because coaches usually talk to students in a way where they can get something out of them that a teacher or a parent can't do. Right. And so those wooden principles, I mean, I mean, that that's even a point they never be late. And then it became, uh, you know, if you are in time, you're late. Because, you know, the coach wants to start their practice at 7 o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And you got to stretch and be ready to go because they have time that they want to get in. Now, back, back then, they didn't have any uh, rules or regulations about how long you could practice. Right. Today, they do. You know, you can only practice, you know, so many days a week. So you better be on time. You better be there early uh, to develop a game. And But back then, you could practice two or three hours if you wanted to and come back and practice again. But, I mean, the, the wooden principles apply to everything today and even more because uh, of the world we live in. you got to be on time. I mean, no profanity, respect your teammates, respect your classmates, respect your worker, co-workers. It's the same stuff. And uh, if everybody works on that, we'd be a better society for sure. Stick, that is so well said. If it was easy, everybody would be undefeated, number one. This is hard as hell. It's supposed to be. That's just unbelievable. I said this a hundred times. Some of you guys must cheat in school. You got to. You got to be cheating. Because you can't make that many decisions that are wrong. How many times do I have to say it? See, that's my... Uh, hold up! Hold up! Hold up! Hold up! You're listening to Center Court with Hall of Fame basketball player Ralph Sampson. Once again, here's Ralph and Mac. Welcome back Center Court on the Winner's Circle Network. Ralph Sampson's in Vegas and you know, this, this segment's about a rivalry, a really good rivalry in women's basketball. Pat Summit versus Gino Oriema. Pat Summit was an institution, died way too young at the age of 64, coached at Tennessee from 1974 to 2012, and was on the national stage and winning titles. And then Gino started to recruit in Tennessee's backyard, and a rivalry was born. Gino never lost to Pat Summit in a national title game, going 4 0. 
Ralph, this is a terrific story, and Pat Summit was one terrific coach. You got to meet her a couple of times, didn't you? I did, Max, doing some of the Hall of Fame or golf events that we participate in with the NCAA or the Nation's Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, et cetera, et cetera. Great lady. Max, just think, I mean, as she passed away at 64. She had another 10-plus maybe years to coach if she wanted to, right? And she still won over 1,000 games in her career. She would have won another couple hundred, right, five, 600 right. games uh, if she would continue to coach and how many more athletes. But, you know, the, the her character – her, her determination, her demeanor. You, I mean, some coaches you can look at, you know who they are, right? Other coaches you can see, like, I know the guy coaches, but I don't know who they coach with. But Coach Summit, Gino, Coach Wood, and Coach Koshevsky, you it's a brand. You know who they coach. You know the players that they coach because they build that rapport with them. And she's one of the greatest that uh, ever, has ever coached uh, in the game of basketball, bar none women or men. As I mentioned at the top, Pat Summit, the head coach of Tennessee, just became a fixture. Uh, she was idolized by many and, and you know, just a, a terrific coach. And she learned a lesson early on from her father. It was after a game that she always remembers, the first loss and the phone call that followed. Um, and we played uh, Mercer University. They were good. And I knew after the game that I had, um, I had not, I just didn't do a good job, you know, and I, I was young and I, I just wasn't experienced enough. Uh, or confident enough, probably. Um, and I remember calling home, and my mother answered the phone, and we were chit-chatting, and she goes, Trish, how you doing? I go, I'm doing great, Mom. Never even asked me about the game. Probably didn't even know we were playing. Or if we, she did, she probably just forgot about it, because she, she never was into sports. And I said, um, is Dad there? And uh, she said, yes. And I said, um, is it okay I talked to him, because he, he didn't like talking on the phone much. And she said yes, so she handed him the phone, and he, I've never heard him say hello. He said, all right. Well, I was so nervous, because I knew, you know, he knows how competitive we all are, and he's competitive. And, and I said, hey, Dad, and he goes, did you win? And I said, no, sir, we lost. Long pause, and I didn't know what he was going to say, other than you need to get out of coaching. But he said, um, so you lost? I said, yes, sir. He said, let me tell you one thing. You don't take donkeys to the Kentucky Derby. You better get you some race horses. And he hung up. <laughs> but I knew what he was saying to me. And it, it, it really shaped me in terms of my philosophy to understand that you win in life with people. You know, it's not about me. I've never scored a basket for the University of Tennessee. You know, and I'm starting my 36th year. It's all about the people you surround yourself with and what they bring to the court, to the game, and uh, to understanding that it is a team concept and they have to do it together. So, Stick, there it is. You don't take donkeys to the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> that is a, a, that, that's a special quote that I'm going to use for sure. But the, the, the last comment she mentioned was, you know, not only don't bring donkeys to the Kentucky Derby, it's the people you surround yourself with to make you successful, them successful as well. I mean, that's the, that's the art because, she, you know, you can't trust everybody and you got to do your way with certain people. And I'm sure Coach Summit and all these coaches that we're referring to had people that wasn't good for their system, either had to weed out or weed in or, or, or coach and uh, coach them up a little bit. But she also mentioned that, you know, that she, she, you know, loses that game, and she didn't. She knew she didn't do a good job, 
right? And she felt it out again that she didn't do a good job. So I'm sure she went back and looked at video or uh, redirected herself like we talked about Coach K when he came back and played UVA and reshuffled the deck a little bit and came back the next game and wanted to be better. And that motivation and that drive is, is unique in most people's life, but some people have a little special what they call the edge factor, and these coaches have that. Ralph, you are so right. And, of course, with a coach like Pat Summit, it was always about setting goals. First and foremost for, for us, you know, it's always been offense, sales tickets, defense wins games, rebounding wins championships. And I think it's to, to understand what our goals are, and we want to meet those, and we want everyone to be committed to that. Um, you know, you, you might have an off-shooting night, um, but you should never have a bad night on defense and rebounding. You should never have a bad night or an off night on lack of communication. We have to be in this together. And I think when, when they understand, it's not about the individual. We are winning for our team. We're winning for our university and for the greatest fans in women's basketball. Yeah, the front of jersey means a whole lot in, in, in tradition and especially, uh, you know, before you play at any university or any NBA professional team and then after you play as well because the name is on there. But if you can make a name for yourself, your name on your back of jersey will mean something at some point in time as well. But, I mean, again, just listening to her speak uh, gives me a chill bump because I can just flash back to playing the game of basketball in high school and college and NBA and then, you know, wanting to go play at a very high level and, and, and knowing when I had a bad game, right? I mean, I would, you know, call my mom. I mean, my mom, mm -hmm. you know, and dad had this big satellite in the back of their yard, right, Mac, when I played in the NBA. And and uh, we didn't have cell phones and stuff back then, but I would call home after the game and, and talk to my mom and what she said, well, you had a bad game. Did you eat right? Did you sleep right? What what, what did you do right? And she'd be the first one to know uh, what I didn't do right from that standpoint. So it was kind of crazy that she could tell or when I was going to have an off, off, off night as well. And then I could go back the next day and focus on that and maybe play the next night or get ready for the next game and be better. So, um, you know, coach, coaches like that, Coach Summit, it, it's amazing to uh, at least hear her speak and, you know, her passing off way too soon, but uh, she, she, she left a legacy that will last forever. And when you think about what has happened with women's basketball, the emergence of UConn and what Gino was able to do and recruit in the Tennessee backyard. And then, you know, for them to meet consistently and in, in postseason and, and try to put together a series that Pat Summit was not too crazy about. Well, Gino Oriema has always carried a philosophy about himself, about the way he handles his team and about coaching. You know, when I'm talking to players and when I'm talking to my son um, and you, you ask them a question or you ask them, you know, hey, what happened? One of your players, what happened? Oh, uh, you know, this happened, that happened. Our oh, coach, I couldn't do it. Our oh, dad, I couldn't. So I read one time where somebody said, don't tell me how rough the ocean was. Just bring the boat in. And I think that's a great way for kids to grow up saying, look, you got a job to do. When somebody gives you a task. They don't want you coming back and telling them why you couldn't do it. They asked you to do it because they thought you could do it. So just get the job done. And the harder it was to get it done, the better you're going to feel about it. It's easy to say, I couldn't do it because of this. Fine. Then you didn't grow and you didn't prove anything to yourself. So that's something that I think is worth repeating over and over again. My bad. Man, I hate that. 
People think nothing of just like, hey, set a screen like this, boom. And then they set it completely different. Well, what happened? Um, oh, my bad. What? You only have one job to do. Set a good screen. Or throw this pass. Okay, here's a guy wide open, ready to shoot the ball, and they throw the ball over here. What, what kind of pass is it? Uh, my bad. What? You got one job to do. Throw the ball right here. How hard is that? Ah, uh, my bad. And like we're supposed to go, that's okay, sweetheart. We'll get it next time. What next time? You lose in the national championship game, we don't say, can I do that again tomorrow? Uh-uh. He's, he's built a foundation around him, right, that, that is better than most people's houses are built on, right? And so he can go do something, open another door to the house or the room, and, 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 and luck is on the side because the foundation is solid. And he, his principles are solid, and his work ethic is solid. So, um, yeah, we hope his luck done around. But 21 years, 11 national titles, Mike. I mean, I, I mean yeah, yeah. you compete with John Wooden at this point. <laughs> yeah, come on. That is so true. Success on the sidelines with quite the foursome. John Wooden, Pat Summit, Gino Oriema, and Mike Krzyzewski. It's all about relationships, teaching, friendship, and proving to others that they, too, can be a leader just like you. Ralph and I return on Center Court after this. To get into sportscasting, you need experience just to get your foot in the door. I can't tell you how many times in my career somebody will ask me, how do I get into your business? How do I become a sportscaster? The first thing I ask is, what have you done? Do you have any experience? And the answer is normally, nothing yet. It's because they couldn't find a program that provided the real-world experience that you need to get started. So I set out to create a program designed for the next wave of sportscasting talent. And my partner was an obvious one. Full Sail University, great track record in entertainment and media, great alumni group, and the ability to evolve as the industry changes. We're offering a bachelor's degree that combines the professional expertise that my fellow sportscasters and I have built our careers on with the technologies shaping the world of sports. To succeed in this business, you have to be ready for what's next. But the core of great sportscasting I don't think will ever change. And this program brings it all together. Center Court, Winter Circle Network, Ralph Sampson live in Vegas. And, well, Ralph, that was a lot of fun, uh, you know, to hear the philosophies of, of those four people. And, you know, when it comes to coaching and teaching, I know with your basketball camps, you do that quite a bit, don't you? I mean, I love that, Mac. You know, I love the camps. I love teaching kids. Uh, you know, it's more about the game, around the game. And so we talk about map, motivation, attitude, and plan your way to success. We talk about making your bed, you know, doing the little things to become successful. And then the game will come if you work at it. But it's fun to, to, to see those kids come and learn, but also then evolve as, as young kids and young men and women, and then hopefully come back. And they're very special to me, especially when we uh, at Math Now Resort this past summer, and we'll do it again this year, where we got – kids that I taught 25 years ago or, you know, in, in camps and clinics when I got to the NBA and then their kids are coming now. So it's special for me to do that. I totally get why you love it. Ralph, to transition to a somber subject, uh, uh, thousands of mourners gathered for the memorial service last week at James Madison, paying tribute to John Painter and Vashon J.J. Jefferson, the two security officers and close friends who were fatally shot last week at Bridgewater College. You know, friends, loved ones, the governor was there, several uh, law enforcement 
personnel from from other cities came to honor these uh, these hunting and fishing buddies. And when the Virginia governor spoke, he said uh, they knew it was a dangerous job, especially in turbulent times. The times we pray together every day for healing and for unity. We offer prayers and condolences for the Painter and Jefferson families and relatives. Yeah, Mac. I mean, these two guys were friends. They were in uh, a wedding together, and one just gotten married recently, and mm-hmm. uh, one was the police chief. And, I mean, small town Bridgewater, I mean, it's, it's, nobody's going to hurt anybody. There's a lot of Mennonite folks there that know and love, but it's a small town, but it's a, it's a quaint town. And you would never think that something's going to happen like that at Bridgewater College. And then, you know, they, they, they took the autopsy down to Roanoke, and then every overpass from Harrisonburg to Roanoke, they had police and people waving at, uh, at, the, at, the, at the family and the bodies that came back to Harrisonburg. Uh, thanks to, uh, you know, everybody that supported that, and uh, prayers go out to the family, and, and uh, definitely not a fun situation to watch. A heartfelt moment for sure. The good guys can't always win, said one of Painter's hunting and fishing buddies, J.R. Dodd, the police chief in Timberville, Virginia, 25 miles farther up the Shenandoah Valley from Bridgewater. Center Court is a presentation of the Winner's Circle Network. Center Court is presented by the Winner's Circle Network and the Sampson Family Foundation. For more information, log on to SampsonFamilyFoundation.org. Uplift. Empower. Educate. Teamwork makes the dream work. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.